Welcome to episode 146 of A Pint with Shawnee B. As those of you who are regular listeners know, we are in the midst or the beginnings of the Don's top 20 countdowns of the best episodes. The Don is here with me again today. How are you? Not great. I've been stricken down with coronavirus. So we're, we're doing this at the very end of January and the Don reckons she may be the first Irish victim of the <laughs> coronavirus. Possibly because she had too many beers last night. No, because... It's time for Corona, isn't it? I know. Well, I order a lot of shit off Wish, so, you know, it could happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, have, I have a slight bit of a cold. Now, you know that feeling... You never get colds. Well, no, do you know what happens to me? You know that feeling that like, when you get just the back of your throat and you're okay, but you're like, oh, shit, in 24 hours, this is going to be a really bad, like, chest yeah. infection. For the past four years, I've been getting that and going, oh, fuck, this is going to be a beast. And then it just disappears after a day or two. I, like do, I yeah. very, very rarely get properly sick, but I get that that kind of tingling where I go, oh, this is going to be bad. And then it just goes away. And I think it might be my wonderful diet of wine, Turkish chocolate and chicken nuggets. There you go. All the nutritionists listening, Cocoa Pops, chicken nuggets, better than an apple a day. Uh, as you know, on the podcast, whenever the Don appears, she always brings a bottle with her. Those of you who listened to the last show will know that I'm doing kind of a dry January as I do every year. What have you got for us today? Today I have Super Value Signature Taste Sparkling Elderflower Press. Is it Press or Pressing? Press. Press. Well, what's the fucking story with the not grab the other one? Yeah. So I did have. So what um, is it? It's sparkling wine. Yeah, basically it's, it's, it's elderflower shit that's meant to be like Prosecco, but there's no booze in it because Sean's on the fucking dry. <laughs> And I might add that the Don does not join me on this, so I'm busy making her drinks for one when she comes over and she gets hammered and I'm sitting there like, ugh. By the way, it's Brexit day today. Today is the day that Britain are crashing out of Europe and we're going to have... Oh, 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 there we go. That's the sound effect. Yeah. So the day that's in it, I thought, right, uh, they had that, you know, that swanky lemonade comes in like a pink version as well. It has the fancy cork top and they want like fucking four euro for its fucking lemonade. But it's French. And I thought, well, now fuck yous. We'll get the French one because we're still in the EU. Um, and I thought to myself, that's elderflower. And I'll drink a small bit of that and I'll be like, fucking I'll put gin into it. <laughs> so I got the other barrel. Do you want some gin in that? Yes, I do. Okay. I offer in solidarity. Britain leaving leaving the European Union with a whimper, apart from that arsehole Nigel Farage's pathetic whatever he did. Oh, his little European. tantrum. Yeah, Ray McGuinness wasn't having a bar of it. So Marie McGuinness is the, what is she, the chair, she's chairing the, yeah. the European yeah. court of whatever. The chairing court or whatever they call it in Europe, I don't just know. sort of say, get the fuck out and take your flags with you. It's yeah. amazing the way the whole Britain thing, like it's been four years of fucking nonsense and division and gnashing of teeth and governments falling and order, order and votes and Boris Johnson and Theresa May doing her dance. And now it's just like they're gone and it's like better fuck with off gin. you know get out she's now got gin in her drink it's better with gin sorry anyway here's a cheers to Britain good luck cheers and all who sail in her I hope but you, you know what I'm enjoying back and I hope you enjoy <laughs> what Boris Johnson is going to do to your country do you know Although, but one of the things that's interesting about Boris Johnson you know this guy Dominic Cummings yeah who's his kind of evil mechanator mm. I read a piece about him recently and he's planning to really bring wealth and Oh, to the north of to England. The north of yeah. England. They're, they're, which would be hilarious if if this Boris Johnson government, I can't see it, but if they actually did a kind of a reverse new Labour, they, be, they the, if, the, if the Tories became more like Labour in the same way that Blair's Labour became more like the Tories, 
Mm. And they kind of started fixing things and getting the NHS back and getting people, you know, Hull and places like this and Sunderland back on their feet. I mean, it would be hilarious. Yeah. It would just throw everything. It would be, wouldn't yeah. it? I wonder if then if the hard line towards go, what the fuck are you doing? We're supposed to be bathing in all the moolah that we've got. From yeah, if you, like, no, it's quite simple that for the Brexit voters, you were just supposed to tell the working class people that they're allowed to be racist, then they'll vote for us. We don't start looking after them, making sure they can feed their children. What are you doing? Yeah. We're Tories. Yeah. But what I'm enjoying today, and I'm look, it's like I'm Irish, so there was a little bit of me that was like, no. Um, but I'm upset for the people who are not ourselves. So I thought, now rain it in, rain it in. It's not funny. What's really fucking funny is they leave tonight at 11 p.m. Why? Because it's on Brussels time. It's like Cinderella. They leave yeah. at 12 on Brussels time. And, and the already- best part is, essentially, tomorrow they will have left. But they will still be paying to the EU and they will still be following EU laws, including any new laws that are changed over the next 12 months, except they're not going to have anybody representing them. So they're actually Europe's bitch now until December. But congratulations. Vassal state. I I just think, you know, looking back on it, it was just, it's four years of our life we won't get back reading articles in the paper, panicking. I mean, okay, let's see what happens. I don't really give a shit anymore. We're also in the uh, throes, uh, as we mentioned the last time, of the uh, snap Irish general election, which is due to uh, transpire on the 8th, which is this day week. I don't know. We've been following it closely. We were going to do a podcast on it, but we kind of went, Yeah. And also, how many of your listeners listeners are actually Irish? Yeah, very few. Those of you who are listening, uh, I want to scroll forward. 20 minutes in is when this juicy part of the podcast starts. And scroll through there if you don't want to listen to us bitching for a few minutes about the Irish political situation. Situation. Political. So we have, one of the things that's happening for anyone who's not Irish is that the, the, the there's been two parties in power in Ireland for the entire last hundred and odd years since the foundation of the state. They're called Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. And they take turns in fucking things up, basically. And for the first time this year, the northern, the political wing of the IRA, as they were called, uh, IRA being the terrorist organisation fighting for Irish uh, unity in the 60s, 70s. Oh my God, you fucking tan. Well, that's what they were doing. They were trying to... Oh, you're such a fucking were, tan. They were trying to get Irish, uh, you know, United Ireland through force and violence. And uh, That's a bit revisionist. Well, I don't know. I think... Let's that, that, that's, that's row back here. You had the IRB, which is the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which was there for a purpose. And like all armies, when there's no purpose there anymore, they turn into thugs and gangsters. That's what happened with the IRB. Then with the IRA, at the start of the Troubles, I mean, like they did get into crime, obviously. It did start for serious reasons. There was massive, massive discrimination up the North. There was there was just no life to be had if you were Catholic. So I'm, I'm not like, Jesus, I'll put my balaclava away in a minute. But I'm just... Could you be any more West Brit in your estimation? Well, they blew up uh, churches in Enniskillen. They blew up uh, innocent shoppers in Oma. They have got a badly stained hands. Yeah, come here to me, shaking innocent like, people of innocent people on both sides. Yeah, no, okay. like okay. no part of me is kind of going, isn't it great? Yeah. And particularly as, as the end went on, I mean, it's the Good Friday Agreement was fantastic and the fact that nobody thought that we'd see peace in our lifetime so no part of me is kind of going as I say the north is riddled with peace riddled with peace riddled with peace so anyway the political wing of the IRA was known as Sinn Féin uh, run by people like who you might have heard of Jerry Adams Martin McGuinness who died recently they also have a political party down south and it's starting to 
gained a lot of traction. People, I think, are fed up with what we have as two centre-right parties, which are very similar in all things, except they were on different sides of our civil war in the 20s. And this new Sinn Féin, led by a sort of a finger-jabbing, balchy woman called Mary Lou MacDonald, is, seems to be making progress, as are the Green Party. No, no surprises there. I was, in fact, a member of Sinn Féin. Yeah, it's all coming out now. It's all coming out in the wash now. Not that I would have... I can imagine you with an arm alight in one hand and I know, a yeah. box in the other. I had that look about me now. Uh, the reason I was was because I was in my teens and I was interested in politics and I had absolutely fuck all interest in making the tea. In So we're talking like 2005, 2006. What political party can I get involved in that all I have to do is say, oh, I'm a Gael meaning I'm fluent in Irish and I can string a sentence together. I am still a 15-year-old in a fucking hoodie and flare jeans what dickhead party is actually going to let me get involved? I know, Sinn Féin. So I joined Sinn Féin. I wasn't going to run for them. Sure, I wasn't old enough to vote. But it was very interesting. I want, and also, um, my dad fucking hated it. <laughs> so there was that. Um, so I joined and I was a member for a certain amount of time. And then I was like, Grant, yeah, so I want, all I wanted to see. It was very interesting. Now, this was when Mary Lou, who is now the president of Sinn Féin, was strutting around making herself known getting cozy enough to Jerry Adams because Jerry Adams was still there and in our area basically you've got the local TD he was elected he was lovely and then you've got maybe five or six really intelligent people and then you've got 30 odd fuckwits that live in their mass box bedroom and play the wolf tones like IRA songs day and night have absolutely no idea what Bunnock Nairn which is the constitution how many pages are in it what is it not a fucking notion have they except Chucky Arlaw 32 counties that's all it is it's literally like 12 year olds that never grew up and that's quite frightening because <laughs> they're the money behind it even though they have pissed all the money but they will give all the money towards it and there were there were underground in pubs meetings <laughs> where the surviving hunger strikers were there and IRA songs were sung and it's very interesting to have been sat there with Mary Lou at the time and now I see her on the telly and you know, all as well. And she's well able to... But, like, I was there <laughs> with the lads who were absolutely in the rat still at the time. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, I mean, I'd speak from... However, Mary Lou is from a Fianna Fáil party. She's yeah. not a fucking Sinn Féin at all because she, like me, obviously made the same connection, decided if I go into Sinn Féin, I'm educated. I'm not going to be making the fucking tea. <laughs> so she, she sailed right up the ranks because there was no competition. And that is why Mary Lou is in Sinn Féin. So... The basic problems in Ireland are where we've been pretty good with the current government in terms of our performance outside Ireland, as in how we handled the Brexit thing. We stuck to our guns, we defended our corner, Europe backed us and helped us, and we've worked out a workable, I think, solution to the border between Northern Ireland and the South vis-a-vis the EU. But at home, they've been dreadful. Yeah, I think we both agree, and it's maybe an unpopular opinion, but we would argue our point. Fine Gael are... By a country mile, the most competent party. And when I say competent, I mean they're the most educated, they know what they're doing. They're the party who are best positioned to sort the country out. However, not in a fucking hot fit would I vote for them. They don't give a fuck about the poor or anyone but themselves. They're neoliberal. I don't trust their intention and they will continue to let us starve. So, bottom line, I'd rather the incompetent fucks who are actually going to try for us. So to sum up what's going on, since the economic crash of 2007-2008, we had Troika sent in from Europe to program us all for austerity, and then a huge uptick happened in the country based on technology giants, Amazon, Facebook, Google coming into the country, 
it's a wash with money again we're the seventh richest country in the world I think or something but as usual in these situations the poor got left behind homelessness got out of control our health system is creaking at the seams constantly it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and there's vulture funds sitting on properties nothing's been developed we call it an emergency we don't do anything and there's a sort of a general there's a great quote in the Irish Times which was that these two Fianna Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are playing 20th century politics with a 21st Hmm. century electorate well, it's, it's looking likely that one of the two is going to form government. Well, yeah. Maybe I, with Sinn Féin. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, a week ago we were talking about this and you were kind of saying no one's voting Sinn Féin. And I'm like, uh, yeah, anybody who doesn't live near the Slorg and Jill carriageway, quite a few people are. And it's not necessarily that they like their politics, but it's the only party that has any hope of getting a fair few seats that isn't Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Now, Fianna Fáil are basically Fine Gael for muck savages. And they're less educated, but they're they're still going to bow down and do everything that Fine Gael do. Yeah, they're more builders than accountants, but they're still going to fuck us over, except they're going to do a shittier job abroad. And the other thing about Fianna Fáil is that a lot more anti-choice is on it, a lot more God-bothers. So any, and things like repeal... Anti-choice ha- being the abortion referendum yeah, at the time so was a big part of repeal two happened, years ago. Not quite two years ago, repeal happened, and that's all shits and giggles, great. Wonderful. That's up for review in the next four years. And the government that's in next is going to be important. We're lucky in one sense that we don't appear to have a Trump or a Orban or a Balsana. We watched that great documentary last night called The Edge of Democracy, which is up for an Oscar, mm. which is all about what the hell is going on in Brazil at the moment. It's collapsing like a flat in the cupboard. We don't appear to have that here. We no. appear to have weathered that pretty well. Apart what, from what we have is a very, very fragmented left that that we seriously need to get that together particularly when you look what's happening with populism all over we have had those characters it's just they have they're not being taken seriously basically they're just built upon the reason it's a housing crisis because of all the immigrants uh Ireland's for the irish the great replacement theory all that kind of shit in the meantime we have people for profit we have social democrats we have some independents like that we just haven't been able to get it together and i go hmm now, I don't want Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael in, nor do I want them to amalgamate because that becomes a one-party situation. Um, Sinn Féin, I think, are really important whether I like them or not. I would prefer them to go in this time, even if they make bollocks of it. If nothing else, if Fine Gael get in again in four years' time, I want them to get in not with a mandate to continue on as they are. I want them to get in knowing you took it too far last time. You took it too far. Wind your neck in. If nothing else, that. And if whoever gets in next bankrupts the country, so be fucking it. So many of us are kind of okay with that because we survived last time, we'll survive next time, but we won't survive what happens if Fine Gael keep going, how they're going. Mm-hmm. I understand if you're if, if you're over a certain threshold, if you own your own home, you go and, I don't want the, the economy to crash again. But some of us, particularly people my age, are so badly fucked that we go, crash the fucking economy, just give, give us a house. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's that bad. Suicide rates are astronomical. There's no mental health. Um, a lot of the promises that are being made by the smaller parties are on mental health grounds because, you know, it's a popular one. But there are some important ones going in there. Like, I think it was Sock Dems, Social Democrats have this um, idea for, I think it was Limerick General, General Hospital, but I think it should be rolled out, even just in one in Dublin, one in Cork, that there was an emergency department for mental health because 
there is no worse place in the world for somebody who's in crisis than A&E. And I have a lot of time for doctors and nurses, but I'll be honest with you, I have been in that situation and they're fucking evil. So in how they behave. Like you're talking about people who are... People who are suicidal people who have a, in crisis. attempted suicide, attempted yeah. to do it again. There are teams of volunteers, particularly around the Shannon. So this is why Limerick is an interesting... Around the Shannon the, is the biggest river in Ireland. People throw themselves into they, it. Yeah, they do. So they've, they've got particular points uh, along the Shannon where they have these volunteers. And some of these volunteers are people who have lost loved ones to suicide. And they go out at night and they keep watch and they talk people down. They find someone who they suspect is gone. And they have had people that they've talked down and they've brought into A&E because they're in crisis after they've talked down. And that same person has thrown themselves into the river a couple of hours later after the treatment they got in A&E because there's nowhere for you off you pop. Um, it's just not good enough. Whoever is there with you can say, where do we take her tonight? She's yeah. in trouble. What do we do? And that's not a huge amount of money, but that's really fucking important. Even if Sinn Féin got in and it, like magically we got some rainbow coalition of the left, if they completely crash the economy in the next four years, but if they introduce something like that and if they build built homes that less people were homeless... No, most of the country aren't going to give a shit really that the economy crashed because they can afford to house themselves and their children. Well, we 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 were in the, we we crashed the economy, and the poor people had to had to shoulder the blame of the rich yeah. banks crashing the yeah. economy. So I went away in ninety six. When I left in ninety six, the same problems I've said this before in the podcast that existed then are the same problems, only worse. We had a housing problem then. Tony Gregory was all over it, and a homeless problem. We had a, a health system that was creaking again, that was bodies on trolleys overnight. We had an education system needed reform. Mm. No one's really mentioning that in this election thing. But the key thing for me is the lack of ideas, the lack of innovative ideas. That Even in this election, all at the hustings, they're all going on about, oh, we're going to build this number of houses, this number of houses. And they don't even know whether they can get the builders or the doctors to go and help the health yeah. system. There's no creativity. There's no... There's no taking over brand sites that have been held by venture funds and mm. taxing the shit out of them and on yeah. every year until they sell them. The last point is that our parliament is just a talking fest and there's so little action. And so it'll act, you know, people say, oh, we could do this and could then time goes by and things get worse and worse and worse. So we've got a week out. We're not going to spend too much time on the Irish election. But my, my view on it is this election, I'm just not going to vote for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. I think they've had enough time. Uh, I think there's dangers to that. I think we need to have a higher voice of social democratic parties at the table. Yep. Be that Sinn Féin, be that Labour, be that any of the other ones you mentioned. So anyway, the Irish election will be done and dusted by the time we're back on air here. Uh, those of you who know what's going on is that Donna has spent probably too much, much more time than she thought she was uh, listening through the episodes of A Pie with Charlie Bean. She's picked a top 20. The last episode that went out was was number 20 in no particular order, right? Yeah, no no particular order. Uh, that was Laura Jordan Bambach. And when we announce number 19 in the, in the countdown, I don't know who she's picked. So she's she does a little quiz on one of the interviews I did and see if I can get it. So okay. let's start there. So your first question... This person said, if I ever asked myself the question, I wonder what it would have been like, well, then I should go and do it. Let's see. A few people have said something along those lines. I know, that's why I asked you that question first, John. This is the hard question. Okay, uh, move on. And since it's Brexit theme today, who once worked in Brussels? Do you want to move on to your final question? My final question. Who did you exchange Sean Connery impressions with? Uh, sure, perhaps. 
might be able now to... I know you frequently do it but who did you exchange them with But this was a reference to his father. No. What's quite impressive? Okay, it's beating me. Jesus Christ, Stephen Fraser. Ah, the James Bond of advertising. There you go. His dad was 007. So Stephen Fraser is a uh, advertising guy who's been all around the world and everywhere he goes it seems that there's a war breaks out around yeah him. that's a bit curious isn't it? <laughs> and, uh, but he went into Bahrain at the start of the Gulf War he was in the Philippines when it went off there he was in North and South Korea uh, he was in Dubai and yeah it, it, you know he, he, we talk about Islam um, and uh, Erdogan's Turkey mm-hmm. and Duarte in Philippines so yeah a good one so what was your take on, on that one right so uh, part of the reason I chose him for today was the day that's in it, Brexit. I found it interesting that he has a take on different cultures. Yeah. Now, you have a lot of people who are expats, and expats is basically immigrant if you make three, if you make a hundred grand or more, you're not an immigrant, you're an expat, which I always find really amusing. Just <laughs> fucking mind blowing. So, expat is posh for immigrant. But Stephen has a particular interest in politics, I think, and has an interesting take on the political sphere and culture and I, I found it interesting to listen to it's an all-rounder and I just thought the day that's in it we could do with a little bit more internationalism also so you discussed the decline of Europe and the merits of benign fascism mm. and at one point uh, you were discussing both of you the merits of Erdogan now in fairness none of you neither of you are saying isn't he great we love Erdogan we love all that he says but there was the merits of it and it's really interesting to listen back now because um, a bit of time has passed and I remember him saying that as long as the art base doesn't go too far it is interesting to note while he's not a big fan of all of his policies certainly but it's interesting to note that a little bit more gets done sometimes and this week uh, it was announced that Turkey has proposed a bill whereby rapists can go free from punishment if they marry their victims including underage girls yeah now this is not the first time like in 2016 something similar was tabled but it was quashed this one seems to be worse and it seems that Erdogan is pretty much behind it. By the way, neither of you were advocating that, but I just thought it was interesting to look back at that. What's that, three years ago? Three years ago. Yeah, so three years on, I find that interesting, particularly today and with all that's going on this week. Well, you know, he's in bed with, with Putin and... You know, Who, Stephen? Uh, Jesus, Stephen! <laughs> and Erdogan's causing all the problems in Syria as well at the moment. Mm. And so, yeah, he's a strong, he's a strong-armed... Uh, dictator in the mould of Donald Trump, Putin and Orban and uh, Duarte and uh, the guy who's Bolsano in Brazil. So what was his quote again at the start? His quote at the start? Oh, the first question. Yeah. Was, if I ever asked myself the question, I wonder what it would have been like, then I should go and do it. That's a good way to introduce the James Bond of advertising, Stephen Fraser. We'll see you next time with number 18 on the countdown. (laughs) See you next time. And cheers to Brexit. Cheers, down at the door, hit you on the way out. Welcome to another episode of A Pint with Shawnee B. Coming to you today, would you believe, from Istanbul in Turkey. I'm actually in a bar called the Bosphorus Brewing Company. And I have a very interesting and peripatetic guest with me. A man who works here now, but has lived and worked all over the world, and still does work all over the world. This is just his his base 
His name is Stephen Fraser. He's a business development director of Ogilvy and Mather and works on primarily Pizza Hut and Yum Brands, which includes KFC, and he's in charge of that globally. But he's had, how long have you been with um, Ogilvy? Been with Ogilvy since 1984. Ogilvy is one of probably the only real agencies out there at the moment who have lifers, who have a lot of people who've been there for a long time and have been looked after. Yes, I think looked after for me is not necessarily in the material way, I have to say. Although that's okay, I can afford to buy a pint of beer for for Shawnee here. I think looked after for me has been that I'm now living in my ninth country and I think looked after in that respect has mean that that I've had a kind of sense of new adventure Mm. and new discover every three to five years and I think that passion for an inquisitiveness and a passion for discovery and new yeah. cultures and new things is is what's really been my goal and mm. mission and I suppose in that respect yes I've, I've been looked after Tell me a little bit about first of all maybe let's go on your life journey where, where are you from and uh, where, were you, where were you born? Yeah so I was born um, in London based in a famous place called Wimbledon uh, from a Scottish father and a Swiss-French mother, which means that I'm half Scottish, quarter Swiss, quarter English, which, if you research carefully, is exactly the same nationality as a famous character of whom I resemble, and that's James Bond. Uh, he does look a little bit like James Bond, but maybe in his <laughs> autumn years. Yes, uh, I know what you mean. So, for perhaps the rest of the podcast, we'll just do James Bond impressions, <laughs> yes. Money. Yes, well, I think I will add to that in that my father was in the Foreign Office and his security number was Peter Fraser, zero. Zero seven. There you go. Look at that. There you Look go. So, was, growing up in Wimbledon, were you sneaking under the uh, tennis? We were. We went there every. I guess I started playing tennis when I was three or four. Right. As people meet me and they say, "Where are you from?" and I say, "Wimbledon." They say, "When do you want a game?" Not, not how good are you or, or do you play? So, tell me what was college like and how were you in school? You, you seem like a bright fellow. Well, I, I, I don't know whether I was academically very bright. I was probably more inquisitively bright yeah. and, and wanted to do things uh, the way I wanted to do them. So, I don't say I rebel against teachers, but I, I certainly I sort of tried to learn in a very different way. Yeah. And in fact, in the end, I ended up going not to university. I got into a couple of universities. I went to a polytechnic. And the pure reason was that those days, polytechnics offered very good vocational, practical um, yeah, approaches. Yeah. And most importantly, and I think this is where things started to kick off, with a year overseas. I was doing uh, international marketing and and French. The third year was working a work experience. In France? Nope, it was actually in Brussels. I probably got the best of the lot. I got the headquarters of Levi's for Europe. Their agency at that time was McCann, and I was on the client side. In fact, after a year of doing that, the guys at McCann said, you know, we kind of like your attitude. Um, Would you come and work for us? And they actually offered me a job in Brussels brilliant and I actually said no okay um, I probably need to firstly if I'm going to join the, the ad brigade I'll start in London and secondly I probably should finish my degree I owe it to my dad if nothing else the money that was the seed that was sown that was the seed that was sown and I was picked up by McCann's in London and Great. started there right. and then I worked on some international business and I think it was from there that I was headhunted by Ogilvy to come and work on their international at that time as their new client which was Parker Pens and yeah. so I joined January the 1st 1980 and so I really I guess started to get on the global train I remember the at that time the CEO of Ogilvy London coming to me and saying you've been working a lot with the Middle East we have a joint venture there and we want to Ogilvy eyes the joint venture partners so we can you know buy them and can you go there and and help to do that 
and the Middle East was on the radar and I suppose I had a slightly uh, I always call it kind of pioneering Indiana Jones attitude yeah. which was if I ever asked myself the question I wonder what it would have been like I should go and do it and I thought well I could say no but then I'm three months later I, I would have said I wonder what it would have been like so it's better to answer the question well, one of the things about the, the podcast is trying to learn these lessons that you've learned from life I'm usually yes. wait for the end but that's one of the things that I would also agree with you the things that scared me the most that I did were the things that in hindsight were the best things yeah that I and I think you've got to let the got to let the answer yeah. you know come through experience and as it was I had a fabulous time I landed just before the Gulf War started so I was in Bahrain right. and I was running the office there and then I got moved to Dubai so that's place number four so Brussels London yeah, Dubai yeah. Bahrain what age were you by then? Uh, I was just under 30 the Gulf War came in when we were in Bahrain so we were sealed off there happened to be about 850 Gulf Air stewardesses also trapped in the same nice, place nice. so just through sheer charity and, well, and hospitality we, we did but yeah. actually they looked after us because okay. we still had to work and, and they you didn't could bring them in and give them a bed and they would bring you breakfast <laughs> yeah, maybe they exactly but there, there was a slightly serious note in that the sirens would go off whenever the scuds were coming in and two or three of them were awake and then they would call two more and two more and two more yeah. and for us who were actually having to work it was actually being slightly serious for a moment it was a life-saving system it was quite scary, um, yeah. yeah it was a bit scary you didn't know quite what's going to happen with all our gas masks even watching it on tv it was it was the first war yeah. that was like almost a video game and those scuds looked like they didn't know what they did well, very well named they looked like really dense yeah well i mean the the americans as you remember missed a lot of them yes <laughs> and um i just remember the first day it all kicked off it was january 17th my dad calling me from home and saying so what's happening and I live quite near the airport and I yeah. said well listen to this and I put the phone out the window yeah. and the, the distant the, tank fire well no it was just the, the jets going off on their first um, on their first oh, sorties right. to Baghdad and yeah. it was quite intense and you, you after a while we got a bit sort of blasé about it but yeah. that didn't stop you know parents and relations obviously being a yeah. bit more concerned so one couldn't say oh don't worry mum it's alright and, and we're going out for a beer because we were going out for beers yeah but there were a couple of incidents that had to make you I love the idea of like, oh, the new billboard campaign just got bombed to yeah, shit just got bombed to, uh, Well, no, we had much worse things than that. And then our favourite Italian restaurant, we went in there as a group in our favourite Italian restaurant, and the Italian owner came running up and said, disaster, guys, you know, disaster. We said, oh, my God, the wine cellar's been blown up. And we probed and we pushed and we all sat down. He said, listen, I've just run out of fresh asparagus. Oh, Jesus. We all got up and promptly left. because by That is a war-torn environment. In better news, your we won't smell as much yeah, as yeah, that's exa- <laughs> that, that is that is That is exactly right. So we had to go for the Osabuco instead. Um, so that was an adventure. And um, So this was 91 you were there. Yeah, and then went to Dubai when it was sort of Dubai being born. Dubai is interesting. We talk about that for a bit because I just came. I, I was in Dubai last week for about four or five days first time there and uh, it reminded me of like a drunk guy who's got 300 billion dollars to spend as fast as possible on skyscrapers yes and he's duly doing so yes Um, what's the you're closer to it is there any truth in that in those days when I West went there it was really being born and if everyone's a conspiracy theory that sort of CNN and the Americans actually invented Dubai because actually that's what happened is that Bahrain was really the center of the financial world of the Arab world well the Gulf world and particularly maybe not the Arab world Um, and then everybody deserted to to Dubai and Dubai was really born out of the commerce that that then brought because remember Dubai's got no oil Abu Dhabi's got the oil Qatar's got oil Kuwait's got oil Saudi's got oil but Dubai doesn't really happen it so it relied on 
huge port, the duty-free aspect of it, which is the Jebalali port, you yeah. might have heard of that, and then making it a magnificent place for people to do business and, and to work. And The Maktoum family. The Maktoum family, and I have to say that the vision of, of the Maktoum family was yeah. incredible, yeah. And, and out of the desert came, came Dubai, yeah. and I think what you see is maybe not particularly deep, but the thought behind it was is, is brilliant. It, it, it felt a little bit like the, the same kind of vision that Lee Kuan Yew had for Singapore, which yes. was like, but, but I felt that the, the Singapore thing, you can sort of see the planning, you can feel what they're trying to do, you can see the kind of vague cultural thing that they have going on, keeping... The one thing on. that Singapore has very differently, it has a colonial past. I mean, of people course, have been yeah, there yeah. in a history, so it has a legacy that people have Built upon. If you've been to Bangalore or Mumbai, well, yeah, and, and, and Delhi, that's no guarantee. There's no guarantee, but at least it's a slightly different way. Whereas Dubai was a vision of one man, you know, yeah, one yeah, family. Yeah. They've created this this mega city, which I have to say is is a fantastic place to live. Yeah. As long as you're not looking for for too much historical uh, yeah. antiquities to yeah. go and explore. We, as Eddie has said, we restored this car park to the way it looked over 20 years ago. Yes, yes, yes. That's absolutely right. <laughs> But you can do things. I mean, the one of the beautiful things about Dubai is, is the desert. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, the desert is a beautiful place. And I've been out there at night and I've camped overnight and I've thrown a snowboard down a dune mountain. So it's got all of that adventure, four-wheel drives and all that. Innovation is never far from, yeah. from their thought. And this, is, this pays respect to the kind of Arab culture and doesn't make the Arab look so dependent on oil. And I think where the UAE as a country and Dubai in particular stands out is that they've put the Arab character and personality in a place mm. rather than just say it's a bunch of people who are going to just thrive off oil because they don't have any oil. Yeah. When you look at the, the you know, stagnation at best, decline maybe at worst of major European countries, how much of this do you think is as a result of democracy versus uh, you know, an iron fist from one man? Lee Kuan Yew, you know, you talk about Singapore as being sort of, people talk about it as being fascist. Yeah, Mahathir in, in Malaysia. Mahathir, this guy, you know, the, it, as long as it's benign and coming at it from a good place rather than a Hitler-esque place, yes. it often works because it's like somebody goes, look, let's fucking yeah, get it done, I, I want it to work well. Well, I think you're sitting in a country that's going through that debate at the moment. You know, the president here has got lots of strengths and the yeah. one strength that he has is that he does understand the people and we are only sitting, by the way, in Istanbul where, you know, less than a quarter of the population live. But the people over on the other side in Antalya, um, Anatolia, sorry, that's what he understands. He understands what they want. Now, nobody necessarily supports the way in which he's done it. He doesn't always say the right thing. But there is some sort of good to come out of it in that, firstly, he's got no com- competition who can do that. And secondly, he's earned the respect of an awful lot of people around here. Now, I don't agree in my wife who is Turkish doesn't always agree with everything he says and maybe some people say oh he's, so, he's this, he's that, mm. he's whatever but you know as long as the iron fist doesn't become too much made of iron, a gloved hand can still be a useful a useful thing. Um, you mentioned when we sat down that this place most reminded you of Thailand. Yeah. And so there's a tax and similar, similarity there. I well. think there's a tax and similarity. I think the Thai comparison comes maybe a slightly different angle, I hadn't thought of the tax one but a slightly different angle in that Turkey is very 
parochial it's very very Turkish mm. sounds silly but that's mm. what it is and no one should disrespect that so when you come and do business here you better learn how to speak the language and I think the same okay, happens well, in time you could add a Bangkok though he was giving cows and sheep out to yes. the people in the, in the that's regions right. you know that's and right. that was how he's winning the votes that's right but if you look at the Thai culture Thai culture is very strong as is Turkish yes. culture yeah. and people doing business there there's far less expat favours you know expats yeah. are being hounded to some degree yeah. and we have a lot less expats in our office than we used yeah. to have it and yet on the other side a bit like Turkey you go to the resorts of the tourism industry yeah. and they welcome everybody yeah. so going back to the Iron Fist thing I think yes there are some governments that have that however there needs to be healthy opposition mm. <laughs> so my Iron Fist bit is slightly qualified in that you can't just do it on your own you need other people to have a voice and be mm. accountable And um, how important do you feel is uh, one of the other roles I think Turkey and to a lesser uh, probably to a similar extent Egypt has to play is this sort of role in the in, in, in the sort of Islamicism, rise of ISIS, etc. in the region. Where, where do you see all that from being close to the ground here? I know it's, it's a tricky question. It's a tricky question and one I maybe be, be, have to be a bit sensitive yeah, about. Sure. I mean, if obviously, you don't, you talk about it, don't worry. I mean, obviously everybody is, is frightened of this. And it's not just about ISIS. It's a more fundamental movement that, mm. that the kind of whole Islamic world yeah, is, wants, is, to, is try, wants to maybe try and create. The mm. question is, is how fundamental they're going to try and be and pushing it back against the way in which other people live versus mm. the way in which they live and if they don't accept that then that's going to be a problem but if they do accept it and ISIS at the moment is not accepting it you speak to people in Turkey who are much more moderate yeah. by the way they don't feel that ISIS are really part of their religion they don't no, feel that aligned to that some of the Egyptians I've spoken to as well they're also strong countries who have people who go look you know we like when, when people say Islam is a peaceful religion it's like saying you know Christianity I suppose is a peaceful religion which at its core it is as well but there's yes. plenty of crap in the Bible yes. that kind of nicely pushed to one side that's right and I think what we need to do as a, as a sort of um, you know non-Muslim people is not get hysterical about this but also understand that there's a difference between being a Muslim and being an Islamicist yes and also being a jihadist mm. yeah and so we're narrowing down every time we go right yes. on, that, on that thing and yes. I think certainly walking around here and you know even even in Dubai and also Muscat where I was and I'm going to Sarajevo tomorrow when, when you visit these places you see actually it's not all mental okay but I also feel that it's beholden on you know if Ireland was suddenly this kind of mental kind of we're gonna go and behead people all the way down yes. to Jerusalem and take it back for the Irish monks or something you know yes. uh, we get shut down yes yeah, quite, you would pretty do. quickly by as long as the Guinness factory doesn't close yeah, yeah, I think that's the main would take over that's, that yeah exactly <laughs> that's, that's, that's kind of one of the main things that we Want, we'd want another yeah, Rosa Tralee, yeah, yeah, exactly, and, and, and a couple, couple of other pieces, bits and pieces. No, and I think the attitude here is that it's always been a very moderate state, you know. Mm. Um, Kamal Ataturk set it up like that. Yeah. He's, he, was, he was very much a supporter of, you know, non-headscarves and respected the Muslim I love, religion. There's a, great, there's a great story about him when, when he was trying to work out how he could modernize to the removal of headscarves yes. and stuff. And apparently he said, uh, I don't know whether you've heard this story, but he's, the, the, the idea that came up with was everybody can or cannot wear a headscarf, but mm. the people who must wear it are prostitutes. Have you heard this? No. That was his solution. So he said, basically, if you want to wear a headscarf, you can, but the people who have to wear them are prostitutes. And that was his way of That's getting very people interesting. to take their headscarves off, because suddenly people well, I'm not wearing I'm not one of them, <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm not one. But, I mean, he stood for that, and I think where the clash is coming is that there's a feeling that some of the values that he espoused of what is a pure 
Muslim religion existing within some democratic yeah. modernist society mm. and now being pushed against yeah. by something that's more fundamental and more with an iron fist and I think so, that's where the clash is coming. It's not about a clash between Muslims, it's quite a clash in the way in which people are expressing it. So yeah, the current regime versus his regime mm. and, and a lot of people would say you shouldn't change the guy who founded where we are. No, I mean I Turkey would not exist. If it, if it well, was he would be he would be seen as a, an enemy of ISIS. Well, he would be absolutely yeah. in a way, and uh, he'd certainly be seen as not as an enemy, but certainly an opposition to the the, the current, you know, the current regime. Mm. But people's respect for him remains huge. He has yeah. his own day. A lot of the initiatives he founded, his support particularly for children. There's yeah. a Children's Day here, which is massive. The liberalisation of women, yeah. <laughs> you know, all of that is something that. It's the two countries, I mean, that I'm most impressed with, because even like you know, it's not it's not quite the same in Indonesia, but like certainly yes. Egypt, Egypt or Cairo, yes, and and Istanbul are, are two really progressive. Yes. Like their people here are smart and they kind of get yes. it, and they're not like. Yeah. Well, they are. They're very smart people. I mean, the global CEO of and chairman CEO of Coca-Cola is Turk. Yeah, I mean, yeah, not many yeah, people realise yeah. that. And actually, up until a year ago, his number two was as well. So, yeah. the two most powerful people on the world's biggest brand were, were, were Turkish, and they're also, you know, in the literary world, in the arts yeah. world. Um, I'm not sure about the music. I'm not a great fan of Turkish music, but certainly those, you know, there's there's Nobel prizes for literature. Yeah. The problem is, is will this sort of more fundamentals approach this happening at the moment will that quash some of that yeah. and there's a number of Turkish people that are very talented that are saying I don't want to stay in Turkey anymore yeah. I want to move overseas the education system sucks the, yeah. the whole shift in the religion is moving so you've got to watch the next there's a certain amount of also not interfering do you agree with that? Like, there's a certain amount of, yeah, we're our thing, and they're their thing, and someone else is someone else's thing, and the Chinese are their thing. There's a certain amount of just work it out yourselves. Guys. Yeah, well, that's what they should do, but this is where the iron fist comes in, because yeah. if you're not allowed to be democratic in the way in which you do that, yeah. the iron fist will just tell you what to do. Well, I meant, get, I meant the other sorry, iron maybe. fist, the iron fist of America or the West. Oh, I see, okay. Getting fear and just going, look, guys, sort it out. No, yeah. that's absolutely right, but I think what they're trying to do is protect to... Protect the royal uh, protect, Yeah, they're trying to... And also, because Turkey borders eight countries yeah, seven of which yeah. has problems yeah. and, and clearly Syria is, is an important connection but uh, maybe that's for another conversation rather than me we're not going to solve the uh, Middle East problem we're not going to solve the Middle East crisis at the but, moment uh, no. no as long as the command one of the things I do believe is that we need to talk about it. we need to be prepared yes. to talk about Islam and Muslims and they need to be able to talk back to us and give us their point of view without hacking our heads off or us blowing them up yeah. so anyway we'll move on from that you left the Middle East to go yes, to Asia to Asia was it Korea you went to? I went to Korea, yes, I went to Seoul. So we survived the Middle East War. The next thing that turned up was mini submarines from North Korea yes, yes. crashing on the rocks of South now Korea. Now explain so that to people who don't remember. North Korea, as you know, and South Korea have yeah. what they call an armistice. They don't actually yeah. have a treaty. So technically they're still at war. Yeah. I think there are... 250,000 mines that lie between the two countries. North Korea is a, what they call the hermit kingdom, although not very hermetic in the sense that uh, the Kim Jong-un and yeah. Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-sun, who are the three presidents, have always been fairly vociferous. So I've actually been up to the border, and, and as an American tourist sat next to me on the way back, which is Pyongyang, said to him, Oh God, that was so boring, you know, it was kind of quiet. And I said, actually, that's the point. <laughs> the point is the uh, tension. You could like almost cut movie. it. Exactly. You <laughs> could almost cut it with a knife. Right. You know, you can fit. And these guys stand there half behind a yeah, building. Yeah, yeah. And you can see the North Koreans with, yeah. symbolized by their very large caps looking down and the, and the 
rock soldiers, which are the North Korean and South Korean soldiers well, on the border. All it takes some guy to get an epileptic fit with a machine gun. Oh, well, it, it, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be, and I hate to think of the consequences. They could be, they reckon they could be in Seoul within an hour, and there are a lot of them around. And by the way, if you're South Korea, on the South Korean side, you're not allowed to wear shorts or thongs, because... The North Korean propaganda will then say, look at the South, they can't even afford to finish Pants. their trousers. Yeah. <laughs> um, and look, they don't even wear socks. So um, it's a huge thing. I think the funniest thing is the, is the flags, two of the biggest flags in the world are there. And the, the South Korean one looks at the North Korean one and says, we need to make ours a centimetre bigger. And the North Koreans made theirs a centimetre bigger. And actually, it. eventually one of them, and I don't know which one, actually collapsed because it was, Too big. It was becoming so big. Yes. That's hilarious. Yes. I never knew that. So the North Koreans supposedly... Uh, sent down spy submarines, these mini subs into right. South Korean waters. Is that like a one-man submarine? Is it a mini? Is so it they're a called mini subs. I, yes, it's sort of a padello with a cover on the top, just in case you you go under. And they were found. Uh, well, some were beached on the rocks, but some of them were found. And I have to say, I, I can't remember the full story, but yeah. um, it was a bit of tension. So straight out of the Gulf War into that was meant. Well, you know, obviously Brilliant. this is going to follow me around for the rest of my yeah. life. And in Seoul, I had a wonderful experience. The mm. Koreans were terrific. They will either reject you yeah. or they will stand in front of a bullet for you there's wow. no kind of inter- in, in, in between yeah. ground fantastic food culture did you, you eat like dogs uh, I, not that I know of and apparently the sign is if you eat dog and you go out in the streets other dogs will come and sniff you because they can smell yes. the dog coming through so that never They're happened not eat you no, they won't eat you. No, yeah, they won't yeah. think you're a dog. They'll just sniff other dogs. They might cock your leg well. against you, but then we'll <laughs> <laughs> try and mate you. Yeah. Yes, exactly, on your shoe. It was a fascinating journey. I was there about three years, just under three years. And, you know, the sport was good. The, the climate was great. The skiing was fantastic. So we're now, like, in your mid-30s? Yeah, so now mid-30s. No, 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 no. Met, met the future Mrs. Fraser there, as they okay. call her, the FMF. She was working for BAT, she was marketing director, not a client, I hasten right. to add. And at the end of Korea, we were sort of together, but not together, so to speak. And, and she came back, she's actually Turkish, and she came back to Turkey. And I went on to my next challenge, which was to run our group in the Philippines. Mm. Uh, which I which, also looked after for such. Oh, so right, have, okay, so we have a common have, ground the there. The Philippines, if anyone who listening to this has committed a murder, needs to hide, needs to get out of the way of Interpol, that is the place to go. In my view, you could walk into the Philippines with a fake passport made out of crayons that says that your name is Mickey Mouse, and as long as there was a couple of hundred dollars in there, you'd be allowed However, it. However, since the recent elections, this certain Mr. Duarte has promised that capital punishment will happen to anyone who commits crimes, particularly um, you know, extortion, robbery, theft, murder, and they will shoot them on sight. Uh, and he was the ex-mayor of Mindanao, which was the problem island in the south, and that's what he did. Yeah. And there's one accusation levelled against him is that he had these death squads who were out there basically, you know, popping people off. So, you know, Philippines, and he's also threatened curfews. We're, uh, we're entering an iron fist Philippines. We're, well, absolutely, we're back to the Marcos era, interestingly. And I think populist Philippines actually quite like that because mm. then they see that as a more democratic distribution of Family wealth. friendly. Well, also distribution of wealth. Yeah. I mean, they're going to get something that only the rich and they're very very rich and by the way they are very rich and particularly the Chinese very rich um, having the Philippines a wonderful time in the Philippines and the people there just saw the glasses half full I remember there used to be a railway line that went down the middle of Manila and people's lives were on this railway line and they used to have those old 
bogey carts that they you sort of pushed up and yeah, down, yeah. and that was the grocery van. And then when the 213 came in, obviously everybody had to lift off the stuff. So I consider when we were playing football as kids going car, it was like train. Exactly, train coming, <laughs> and, and their whole life just shut the door. But then what they did in the Philippines is that they built apartments near the railway line, spanking brand new, yeah. and offered them for free, running water, da da da. And they all said no. Yeah, well, you know, don't mess with our lives. This is what we've lived up with. We're happy with a corrugated iron shack. The problem is, is that we come at it with a with a lens that is our lens, and yeah. we actually never put on the lens of their lens. Mm. And actually, if they looked to, they looked at our world, they'd probably think it's ridiculous. I think a lot of the anger and irritation that Westerners, expats, America, big Western governments cause Asian, African countries is this kind of just desire to impose it maybe it goes yes. back to the colonial times but yes. it's desire to constantly impose you're thinking on us and it's like we don't think that way no and I think that's totally wrong and I think the Asian Asia's fighting back <laughs> and I think there's a feeling sort of belittlement it's like yeah. you know who who are they yeah. whereas we're wealthy big western well, if our powers. lives were perfect and we didn't have marriage breakup yes. and we had very happy children and we all didn't go to shrinks and we didn't have the whole world economy collapsing around us like yes. a flan in the cupboard every now yes. and then. Yes, we may have a point. Yes. But they could always go, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. We do we do we, we do a lot of things we do a lot of things better. We do a lot of things better. You know, having lived through those Asian countries, I learned much more when I was East than I am as West. I agree. <laughs> about life, you yeah. know, and, and the Philippines certainly taught me about humility. Explain um, that a bit so, more. So humility is, I think the Philippines is a very underrated country. I think Philippines should have been probably the center of Asia. If you think geographically, yeah. it's halfway between kind of Hong Kong and Singapore. In a way, it's halfway between sort of Japan and Thailand. It's the most English speaking at that mm-hmm. time. And yet it's never got up to that status. Now that could be a criticism, but at the same time, I, the Philippines are very humble people. They're, yeah. they're, they never try and kind of push themselves in front of you, but they're very happy to join in. And they're very happy to teach, and they're very happy to learn. And they, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And the joy and the kind of celebrity nature of them. They're the best karaoke singers and impersonators yes, yes. in the world. And I'm sorry, the Koreans, but you, you may find that hard. <laughs> no, there was a slight dark side mm. in the Iron Fist. Mm. And, and I was there when there was a coup. I was about to close the, the office when um, Estrada, the Arab, as they yeah. called him, was sort of being in prison and there, and there were there were sort of Molotov cocktails starting to fly around and this okay. and we were right on the street and then he got arrested and taken away and you know what happened you know that the opposition guys would sort of come out and shake hands with each other it was almost like this was a game of soccer take their bag of yeah, rice because they'd all been told yeah. well they'd all been told you do this side so the reds blues I can't remember what the colours yeah. were so it made it all and they were making a joke of it so it was quite funny they were almost yeah. making a joke of the joke until but that next was a bit time. of until, until, until next time, time exactly yeah. yes we'll see you soon but what nobody wanted was a kind of another Marcos era type yeah, of yeah. type of approach it's interesting to see what the latest election it's one of when we talked earlier about letting countries kind of get on with it it's one of those that's really tried to do that well I mean that's a very um, good point nobody's interfered there mm. I think to a large extent that's been the same with with, with Korea and I think it's been the same with Japan and look how they've progressed. I think the Philippines have been left alone. They're very sympathetic, they're very, very kind and I think this is largely found a little bit not only in their character but also their religion. They are Catholic, (laughs) but in the nice Catholic way. I don't mean Catholic (laughs) in the strictest flagellate themselves way, but uh, but perhaps... So where did you go after... Malaysia. Ah, 
Okay. Another Muslim country. So I'd now been through the what Middle East. What year are we in now? 97. The end of Mahathir's reign. And the Malaysian so crisis. Yep. And very much the Malaysian crisis. Crisis seems to follow you everywhere Exactly. You go. Well, so this is it. Yeah. So we had Gulf War, mini-subs, coups, yeah. and yeah. now... You know, Mahathir had been there for a long time and, yeah. and still is very vocal. My gosh, some people yeah. feel feel he's there. So Malaysia was an interesting experience. I, I really enjoyed it. I think this coming together of three different yeah. races, and it really is. I can't think of another place in the world that... Singapore and Malaysia, yeah, is yeah. truly... Well, even Singapore is still dominated by Rural the kind of Chuni yeah. Chinese base. Yeah. Whereas Malaysian, I mean, Malays, Indians yeah, and yeah. Chinese... They, well, they had riots up until, like, the 80s. And they still... Yeah. It's still not flares a... Up, yeah. yeah, it still flares up, and it's still... Plus you know, their outlets. little sultanates, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Plus it has no the sultanates. Really right. it, yeah. like, and they rotate, yeah. so the sultan rotates. But it's a wonderful country. It's mm. a beautiful country. It's um, got some. It's got the oldest forest in the world. It's yeah. probably got some of the nicest golf courses in the world. Yeah. Some of the best diving in the world. And the food is just. Yeah. To, I think is arguably the best in Asia. And just before Malaysia, I got married. Yeah, so I got married to the the Turk. Yes. And took her with me to Malaysia. So Malaysia was interesting from that point of view. Um, and where did you um, go after there? And Malaysia then on Hong Kong out of Hong Kong where I met some of the people you mentioned yeah. earlier on and um, also two small people so two small people yeah. came along yeah twin twins yeah right. twin uh, boy names? and girl Ben Adam and, and Maya Sophie so I've got one of one of each right. and they're now uh, seven and a half it, it was great and we absolutely loved Hong Kong and if you ask me which is the place out of all of the ones I've mentioned that I probably most like to go back to really? it, it would be there yes okay. and Hong Kong has that little element, a bit like Thai, the way they mix kind of, a bit like here actually, it does, it does, they mix does. modernity and, and, and history very well together. And then you came to Turkey after And that. then I came to Turkey after that. So, yeah. after, so that's whole, nine. after this mental sort of career and around the world and traveling and running big business, what are the kind of two or three lessons that you've learned that like, one of the things of the podcast is passing stuff back yeah. to, to, the future, to the previous you. I go back to the first thing I said earlier, if you're ever going to ask the question I wonder what it would have been like for yeah. God's sake don't yeah. let that pass I, the second thing is to find a way to immerse yourself completely food allows you to do that music allows you to do that some of the other performing arts dress whatever it might yeah. be and I'd say the third thing is for me is if you are moving around a lot you've got to be totally committed to doing what you're going to do don't think of the next move while you're in the previous move even if you're here you're going to be moving in three months people will sense that and the, the world is not about the west to your earlier point yes. it's about you know west east middle north south whatever and each has their own culture allow them to live that when way. i first went to singapore my my good friend charles anderson who's a very erudite six foot eight englishman said to me sean you've just got to understand that the chinese hate to lose face under no circumstances should you let a Chinese person lose <laughs> face. And I said, what about the fucking English? Yes, yes. But isn't what? it about time they did it? He yes, said, exactly. you're the worst at losing Yeah, they going to say, yeah. Hot calling Fort the kettle. hooliganism, Falkland Hot. Islands, Ireland, etc. Et calling et the kettle black. No, we're not yeah, taking absolutely. that off. Before we finish, your views on the future of the world for your two small kids? Well, I think it's going to be tough. I think they're going to live in a different world for if they're going to live in an online world for yeah. a start, a global world, because it's going to be connected. So... We're encouraging them to learn languages. 
yeah. to learn cultures and yeah. actually them being part of this culture. I think competition will get tougher and tougher. Kids they're competing with are the Koreans and the Chinese, and I tell you what, yeah. they're a lot better than a lot of other Western kids. Um, about from a humanity point of view? Like so interesting, the first World Humanitarian Summit has just happened here. That was a big statement. I don't know what's come out of that, but I mean, I'm clearly, everybody's massively concerned. I mean, that's a very facile statement, but I, I want our kids to be as responsible as that. The Turks, to be perfectly honest, are not great at doing that. There are some individual pockets where yeah. they are aware that things need to get better mm. in terms of polluting the world and I use yeah. that in the broadest sense. So kids have got to understand I guess two things. One is technology in its purest form and the second thing is, is, is environment and, and if I was to give them two themes that's what I would give them to work on. See and Fraser it's a great place to end it. A man who has travelled the world and clearly picked up an awful lot of wisdom and ideas and thoughts about how we will perform as people going forward. Thank you very much for coming on a pint with Shawnee B. Best of luck in the future. Thank um, you. Look after Pleasure. yourself, mate. Thank you. Thank you.